Greetings, dear listeners. A huge treat for you this week. We had Richard Reeves, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies and the Director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative at the Brookings Institution, join us to talk about his new book, Of Boys and Men. It was a terrific conversation about what some, but not Richard, are calling a crisis of masculinity. The book is rightly getting a lot of attention these days, and if you haven't yet heard about it, we warmly advise you to check it out. It's a far-reaching and fiery conversation that really gets into first principles. Do men have to lose out as women won their rights? Will any policy solutions work to change the balance? Will there be a lasting backlash to these trends? Or will capitalism just work it all out? Paying subscribers get to hear the whole thing. If you're not one yet, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to hear the whole thing. On to the show. Richard, I absolutely loved this book. And, you know, we say this with other guests, but this time, I really, really mean it. Um, you, say that every, you, you say that every time as well. <laughs> okay, but not only did I love it, I actually think it's important in a way that most books aren't in the sense that every single American, but actually even beyond the U.S., um, it has a relevance to their lives to the extent that you to, to the extent that someone knows a man or a boy, this mm. book will be relevant. And the title, I think, makes that really clear. It's called Of Boys and Men. Um, and I didn't realize the full extent of the crisis. Um, I knew that there was a problem. I've heard things here and there, but it is worse than I thought. And it's probably worse than our listeners thought. And the basic idea, I think, to put it bluntly, is if we want to be serious about gender equality, we can't only talk about gender equality for women or girls. We have to talk about gender equality for men and boys, and especially boys who are falling behind on really an endless number of metrics. And I, I couldn't even believe some of the numbers here, but just to give one example, the um the 2020 decline in college enrollment was seven times greater for men and maybe i misread that or misunderstood mm -hmm. that but if that is in fact true that is remarkable um mm -hmm. so anyway we can get into some some mm -hmm. of those statistics in in it more is, detail it is true it is i can, I can <laughs> okay there in, you go uh, unless like like this is one of these areas where you really want to be sure of your facts uh, yes. And so, yes, that's that is absolutely true. And again, it's one of those things where I think I had to get to table three of Appendix A of of a you know of a report to to find that, and then go wait what, and then get someone else to check it and go, am I getting this right? And eventually, then we did write it up for Brookings, and it did start getting some attention. But it's a classic example of just like I had to dig pretty hard, uh, and I was looking for something else, and then found that number. I was like, wait, really? Part, part, yeah. of the, part of the story of the book, Richard, is that, that, that uh, we don't keep track of these figures, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. one of the, I think, subtexts of it is that uh, the sort of, you know, mid-20th century on uh, liberal project of uh, redressing uh, the inequalities in society, the gender inequalities, um, have sort of flown one way. And, and 
we find ourselves today in, in a situation where I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say that it's a it's a uh, sort of a, a a lingering sort of I don't know um, systemically how to this, that social scientists have 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 you know while still focusing on closing gender gaps for the benefit of women. A lot of times, a lot of the statistics facing men just aren't recorded for almost sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, reasons of how things are done. Because well, that comes through a lot, right, in, in, your, in your research, that you're, you're struggling to find the, the, some of these data. Uh, yeah, so I think there's, a, there's two different things that could be going on. One is, are we actually tracking the data uh, by, by sex or gender? And sometimes we're not. And, and you know, the most for me, one of the most obvious examples of that is we don't track high school graduation rates by sex uh, in the US. And so to get the high school graduation rate, I, I just wanted the gender gap in high school graduate on time high school graduation rates. And I thought oh, that's a quick, you know, that'll be a quick project. I ended up having to do a whole Brookings research project, where we went state by state to get state level data on it, and then combine it um so that isn't collected for sure but i would say actually much more commonly the data is maybe collected and maybe even reported but it is reported as i've said in sort of table four of appendix c and not highlighted uh if the gender inequality uh you know doesn't go the way that perhaps would would be traditionally thought of and so there's two different things one is like do we know and the second is like do we know mm. because Sure, if you're willing to dig and sometimes go to the, I've got a lot of times I just went to authors and I emailed them, said, Hey, can you break that by gender for me? And they go, Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, and so it's, it's sometimes that it's, that it's not highlighted, even if it's there, um, even if the data is collected. And I think that's because, you know, honestly, our priors are to look at it the other way around. But also, and there's an institutional aspect to this too, there are a lot of organizations whose job it is to highlight gender inequalities as they affect girls and women um it's literally their job they wake up every day and so they're looking at labor market trends they're looking at education trends a, a recent example is um, a study out of the national partnership on women and families which looks at the infrastructure bill and criticizes it because 70 percent of the jobs will go to men actually working class men disproportionately of color it looks like but but the only reason we know that is because there was an organization who broke the data down for us and specifically to highlight how it advantages men, not women. There aren't the equivalent institutions on the other side. And by the way, I think you could easily describe that as a feature of that bill rather than necessarily a bug. But maybe that's to get into the politics of all of this. But uh, the basic point is that even if the data is there, it's typically not highlighted. And you have to ask yourself the question as to whose institutional or personal interest is it in? to highlight gender inequalities when they run the other way. And there isn't a really good answer to that question. I mean, so I'm, I'm, ahead, I'm, so I'm a little bit, I'm torn in the sense that part of me thinks that this book is extremely controversial. And the other part of me thinks that it's not. And I suppose that's actually an indication of where we're at as a country, that things that might other seem otherwise seem obvious are now spoken about with considerable difficulty. Um, but so hmm. I think there's the empirical argument that boys are falling behind. But I think what might be more controversial is how you explain the gap. And you do talk about things that aren't supposed to be talked about in polite company, that there are, in fact, innate differences between the genders, we are not all the same. And not only mm -hmm. are we not all the same, 
were actually quite different in important ways. And some of those things are physiological. And I was not aware of this, for example, that um, boys' brains develop in a fundamentally different way, that the the prefrontal cortex, the so-called CEO of the brain, actually develops several years later for boys than for girls. And Mm -hmm. that's just a very, and presumably you can't, that's something people have to accept. It's science. Then there are things that are maybe more subjective, but could you maybe just talk Mm -hmm. us through that a little bit? Are these differences socially constructed? Are they innate? And obviously this is an age old debate about nature versus nurture. Yeah. And a frustrating one for sure, because, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the high school answer is, well, both. The, the question is then how much uh, and how one interacts with the other between nature and culture. And so it depends. It, it's entirely going to depend on what we're looking at. Like, what's the, what's the question at hand? And so it's a general truth that distributions overlap, right? And understanding that distributions can differ but overlap is a big part of it. But different distributions overlap to different extents. So the male and female wage distribution, for example, now they really overlap a lot. I mean, they look quite similar, but the distribution of violent crime rates between men and women doesn't overlap very much at all, right? They have incredibly separate distributions. So the question is, how, how much do they overlap? And then why does that matter? Um, and how does it matter? And unfortunately, like some of these things are... <laughs> I'll give the example you just drew on, uh, Shadi. Let's look at that. Where there isn't really any controversy is the the development of the prefrontal cortex. You, as you quite rightly say, is you know it develops a bit later in boys, on average, a year or two later, and it particularly matters in adolescence. So it's the CEO of the brain. But as I like to think of it, it's the bit of the brain that makes you do your chemistry homework rather than going out partying with your friends. Uh, it's a bit of your brain that, that thinks ahead. It's the bit of your brain that controls the risk. And adolescence is a period where actually we're, you know, we're running ahead of ourselves. It's it's more risk-taking, but much more true for boys than girls. And boys do develop a little bit later. So to the extent you have an education system that rewards skills of deferred gratification, paying attention, getting your homework done, turning it in, that's obviously going to favor the people who have that more developed. And there's no real controversy about that. Interestingly, we can argue, we can argue about how and in what ways male and female brains differ, uh, and I think both sides just you know get that probably wrong. Well, one overweights, the other underweights, but there's no real controversy about the timing of the development, <laughs> uh, but not also not discussed. And so our education system continues to be constructed as if. 16-year-old girls and boys were on average the same, and they're not. And it's interesting, when I shared this book with a liberal colleague um, here at Brookings, very liberal, very feminist, and she read that chapter, and her response was, well, duh, I've got a daughter and a son, tell me something I don't know. And so it's interesting how when people actually think about their own experience, they go, yeah, of course we know that. I mean, like, we've known that since the beginning of time. But are we not allowed to know it anymore? And more importantly, does it then matter for how we think about education? And I would argue that it does. And so that's where it becomes relevant. If it matters, then we should pay attention to it. And that one, I think, really does matter. So, Richard, the, 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 what you were talking about, about you know, all the incentives, the institutional incentives to pay attention to a lot of these things, part of the book's argument is that we need to rejigger that so we're paying more equitably to both sides and being able to address it by policy. 
One of the other arguments, though, in the book that that jumps jumped out at me is that, you know, when policies have been sort of tried in <clears throat> a more egalitarian way, they they benefit women and men are falling behind. And and that signals, you know, less a um, a gender uh, sort of a physiological difference that it's at the core of it, but that something has shifted in society um, and that there's a, a broader shift here that is, you know, not really being addressed by or even perhaps is not addressable by by narrow policy sort of attempts. Um, mm. I guess I'd like to sort of pick that apart a little bit because, you know, it's almost like there are two books in here. On the one hand, it's a it's a books book by a, uh, uh, a respected uh, uh, Brookings scholar that is actually quite policy. Tamir, that's heavy. redundant. You don't have to say respected Brookings <laughs> quite, scholar. Right. That's true. Thank that's you, true. Shadi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, it's, it's extra deference since I'm not a Brookings scholar myself, but it's, it's, uh, um, uh, given that there's, it's almost two books in the sense that, that, that the one book is, is about policy and about things that we can do to, with the policy tools, uh, to address these things. But there's a, a, another subtext to the book, which I, I, I find, um, I'm not sure if it troubled me. I haven't yet wrapped my head around exactly what I think about it. So, you know, hopefully we can work through this a little bit as, as we talk. Mm. But it, it's, it's this question of um, mid-century liberal policy attempts to address real deficiencies, uh, real um, equality efficiencies in our society have had knock-on effects um, that are not merely addressable by society, but have rejiggered basically the basic framework of how men and women interact in our society. And it feels like, to a certain extent, there's another argument in your book that men are, are getting screwed there as well. Um, and I guess I'm not fully clear how you approach that part of it. Like I said, mm. there's, the, there's the policy part of it, which is we need to do this, that, and the other thing to have boys catch up and there's an argument, a socioeconomic argument, especially about about black men and how that needs to be mm -hmm. addressed and how they really get screwed, doubly, triply screwed by a lot of this stuff. But there's this other element of shifts within society that I feel somewhat goes unaddressed in the book, or at least not as tidily addressed, you know, in the last chapter, which is, you know, what can we do about mm. it? Is that fair? Demir, let me push you. What are, I, hmm. Can on. you just finish your thought? So what, what do you think isn't really addressed by, by Richard? Um, I think there, there are many parts in the book where, where uh, I think you, you, very, you put your finger on uh, something very real, which you, you come back to this point that, that men are purposeless in today's society, that... Um, that, you know, traditional gender roles that were predominant, um, and we can talk about how long they've been predominant and how these things shift in history, because, I mean, I, mm. I'm not a historian of this sort of stuff, so I, I don't exactly know, but I think it's an important question. But that, that, that not being sort of called to be the traditional breadwinner and provider um, mm. within society, almost by empowering women, as we have since the beginning of the century... Um, we have created, uh, we have made them rightly independent of men to the extent to which they don't need men anymore. Yeah. And as a result, uh, men are unable to, or have 
thus far been unable to cope with that by and large and find a, a role. And that goes beyond policy in a sense, because it's, it's, it's more than just structural. It's, or maybe you would say it's just structural, but it, it yeah. seems like it's less amenable to a policy fix like the ones you, you outlined towards the end of the book. Is that fair? Okay. Uh, well, I think it, it goes back a bit to where Shadi was a moment ago, which is this, uh, this sense of like, is this either a breathtakingly radical book or a really banal book right is this like a wonky like oh my god he's got evaluation studies of technical high schools from connecticut like really that's like glide like is it like is it like a like policy a book to sit up there with the policy or is it like a holy moly this guy's claiming that the entire culture has been completely transformed in ways that have benched men right and i think that's the tension that that you're getting at there demir i'm going to try and answer your question so um the i do attempt to do justice to those cultural changes that you've just described but to try and do so in a tone that, if not dull, <laughs> is hopefully inviting. Well, right? I just want to not polemical. For, well, for for listeners, for listeners, just the book is not dull. I do want to just sort of get that oh, out of the way. Well, I, I really that's did so find sweet. It... No, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of bits. There's a couple of bits here. Actually, my wife took out the dull bits. She read. <laughs> she she read some, and there was this kind of bit where she actually this became like a famous thing in our family. She 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 put this comment on one bit. She said, "What did she say? She's painfully wonky." opaque and adds no value and my son and, and she she read this out she read this out at the dinner table and my son looked up from his phone and said wait are you talking about dad <laughs> that's what's interesting it's like one of the themes of the book but um but i i here's here's the thing um one is that this cultural shift which is this fundamental change in the economic relations between men and women that you just talked about which was the principal goal of the post-war women's movement to make it marriage a choice not a necessity to allow women to be economically independent to break the chains of dependency between men and women that was the goal and that's what gloria steinem and others said it was and guess what hugely achieved in an incredibly short period of human like overnight in terms of human history like amazing right now that has now asked profound questions as conservatives anticipated it would about the role of men right if you make men a choice not a necessity then what does what do we do with the men um and what do we do with the men has been the question at the heart of most human societies to be honest but we've had pretty clear answers for quite a long time we don't have a clear answer now so i think everything you've just said is true and I would say that's a structural challenge. And so I talk about the structures of the education system, the structure of the labor market, but I also talk about the structures of family life. I see family life, gender roles, fatherhood, motherhood as social institutions, therefore part of the structural environment within which people live. And so I see this fundamental alteration at the heart of family relations to be a massive structural change and a huge structural challenge facing men. And so I don't think I duck it. Uh, what I do attempt to do is then say, okay, so what do we do? And what I do is, in a fairly boring, policy-wonky way, talk about paid leave for fathers and more rights. And you might say, ah, yeah, that's not going to do it. You know, it's going to take much more than that. Okay, I agree. But I didn't want to write one of those books, which just hand waves about the need for culture change at the end. We do need culture change, but that should be underpinned by, and to some extent, symbolized by public policy 
So I'm not claiming that paid leave and better, you know, a better legal system for unmarried fathers is going to overnight reconstitute the social institution of fatherhood. But I do think that that's the cultural task in front of us. And to some extent, if you write a book in this style and this approach, what I'm doing is I'm inviting this conversation and I'm trying to create space within which we can have this conversation. Can I, can I just follow up on that? You know, <clears throat> is, do you see that, 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 um, I mean, how, how would I put this exactly right? Does cultural change, in the sense that, that I think it's really interesting you said that conservatives saw this coming, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, foreshadowed it in a lot of ways, didn't get everything right, but saw it coming uh, as feminism was rising and, you know, as it was really achieving all of its goals. Um, nevertheless, it's still the cultural changes are, in a way, unanticipated or not exactly how anyone pushing for these changes would have anticipated them working out more broadly. Do you know what I mean about the sense of anticipated and unanticipated what you, there? What, what I'm you, getting at is, well, is, is... What do you mean? Can you be specific though? Like, I, give, give an example of something that wasn't an anticipated cultural change. Um, the unanticipated, the, the, the broader enemy of men in the sense that, that, that the feminist project was about redressing a historical grievance and uh, injustice for women uh, and, you know, uh, locked down by patriarchy, traditional roles in the family. Mm -hmm. So, and the unintended consequence was, again, perhaps uh, anticipated by some conservative observers, but nevertheless, I would, you know, was, was an unintended consequence. So the question is, well, is, is basically, how does... Do, I, have a, I, have a, I don't a, think, I honestly hmm. don't, I don't think you've read enough uh, conservatives from the 1970s, honestly. <laughs> they, all um, they all saw it coming. Because, well, they they got something. What they what you're right. What they said is they didn't anticipate this kind of enemy, right? This this sense of retreat, and what they anticipated was massive increases in violence. Um, as men were competing with each other, they didn't have anything else to do. They weren't bound into the relationships of family. If you read Gilder and Dench and those folks, like they were, they were saying, "Look, we're going to have a bunch of men who won't have pro good, good pro-social roles, and they're just going. It's going to be like Mad Max, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be like these guys marauding around, totally uncivilized, killing each other, killing everybody else, like etc. And precisely the opposite has happened. Rates of violent crime have gone down." over the same period that this has happened. Um, much safer society. And so we do not have, with obvious few exceptions, we don't have marauding bands of violent men, as the Conservatives predicted. We instead have a bunch of men who've retreated to some extent to the internet. Right. Uh, and they're retreating. So they're not acting out, they're checking out. Now, I think that's... In, it's not as big a problem. I'd rather be in a society where the men are, you know, I'll, I'll stereotype for a moment, where the men are kind of in basement smoking weed, uh, playing video games and looking at porn than one where they're marauding around in violent gangs, for sure. But it doesn't mean there isn't still a problem there. It's just not as bad as the problem that the Conservatives anticipated. But they absolutely anticipated that the question of what does it mean to be a father, what does it mean to be a man will be asked with a new force if the women's movement succeeds. They were absolutely right about that bit. But let me okay. But, let me put a finer point on this because yeah. Demir's pulling his punches, for, um, and I maybe I can just be his anger translator. Um, okay. But um, look, but respectfully, I think, because obviously I'm a respected Brookings scholar. So. <laughs> of course, of course. 
I, I don't think we need to complicate this. Um, a big part of modern liberal society is undoing the traditional role of the father. The historical role is that of a provider. We've alluded to this, but mm-hmm. let's just be very explicit. This is the way it has been for a very long time, maybe not in every society, but in most and throughout most of human history. Um, and this is where I think it's very difficult to address this. Look, I'm all for coming up with policy solutions. Let's do the best we can. But I, I also don't think we should pretend that we can actually solve this. We can close the gap a little bit, but at a basic level, this is what modern society is about, particularly when you have liberal left of center people and parties that dominate not politics necessarily, because in a lot of in a lot of Western democracies, we have strong mm. right wing parties. But in terms of the broader culture in advanced Western societies, this is not it is not acceptable for men to be seen primarily as protectors and providers. And maybe that's that's pro- that's for the best on on balance, as, as you argue in the book, because we've had amazing progress in very important areas um, when it comes to empowering women and making sure that women are represented in the workplace and, and in politics and so forth. So I'm, I'm sort of a pessimist in the sense that good things don't go together. So if we have a lot of one good thing, we're probably going to mm-hmm. have other bad things. And there may not actually be a solution, especially here in the U.S., where if we're talking about the most well-educated culturally dominant people in our society, they are not going to, as far as I can tell, allow for a situation where there is a cultural shift where we elevate the idea of fatherhood or even mm-hmm. manhood. I don't know if that's the right term. You don't use that word uh, that that no. word in your book. That's Josh that's that- Josh Hawley's book. Josh Hawley's book is called Manhood. Coming out next year. So Oh, I did not actually I did yeah. not actually know that. Yep. But you do yep. talk very in, in, very passionately about the importance of restoring this sense of the provider, at least to some degree. But how is that going to happen if our culture – that's just not what – that's not what culturally dominant people are willing to go along with. Well – uh, I mean, I think the, the important thing is to say that provider can re- redefined, of course, and, and broadened out. And so let me try to be the optimist to, to your pessimist. The cultural task in front of us is to ensure that there are pro-social roles and scripts for men, especially fathers, that are compatible with gender equality. That's the task. And I agree with you that policy is has only a, a part to play. And this is much about what we say and how we treat each other. And reconstituting fatherhood as a social institution, absent this provider, the, 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 the provider role can still be there, but it's always going to be voluntary, right? Women are twice as likely to file for divorce as men. 40% of breadwinners are now women. 40% of women earn more than typical men, the typical man. So we're in an entirely new world. And so we, we either just say, yep, okay, we don't need the men anymore. Let's bench them and thank God for the internet because otherwise they'd be marauding. Um, and that's just like, uh, there's a Rick and Morty episode where the guys are just left down on the planet. I don't know. You guys, do you guys watch Rick and Morty? Mm-mm. No, no. Okay, no. Is that like a cartoon? 
Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's an animated <laughs> thing, but there's there's like a um there, there's a, a whole there's an episode where the men are basically like left down on the planet and they're just barbarians, right? And the women are up on this space station in this kind of gleaming feminist utopia, and it takes the piss out of both. But but the point is simply that like they just use the men. They have this complicated way that they get the sperm to you know, reproduce, which is always the problem with feminist women only utopias is how do you reproduce? Um, and like <laughs> that's one option, but. I don't think it's an option that anybody takes seriously. And all the women I know, regardless of their politics, are worried about their sons and their husbands and their fathers, and they're wanting them to do, but they're wanting them to flourish and recognizing that's going to have to be in a different way to their fathers, but also in some ways different to them. There are some differences, and we don't have to go back. And so I would not understate, and maybe this is where Demir's issue is, is that I'm try I'm writing in a tone that doesn't try to sort of send alarm bells ringing about this gigantic crisis and so on but i do think there's a cultural task in front of us i don't think i pull my punches about how the old model of fatherhood has been hollowed out as a byproduct of the welcome economic rise of women and i don't see anybody really even acknowledging the question let alone trying to answer it so let's at least start to try and answer it yeah well what if if this of course i totally agree but what if in some sense this is the natural state that we've been heading to for centuries or millennia in the sense that patriarchy throughout human history was a subsidy for men who are not as intelligent, perhaps, or emotionally intelligent in certain ways. They're more aggressive. Um, they're less self-disciplined. What if this is the way we always were, and now we're returning to the state of nature in some sense and like, who's to say we shouldn't just accept this? If this is where so men end up being in this unfortunate situation, this is who they are. And we don't have parity in most things in life between um, between any two groups. You take them and you compare them and there is never going to be parity. And this argument is oftentimes used when it comes to. Um, you know, ethnic groups in a much more controversial way. Um, if you want to, if folks want to maybe extend that into this domain, they can say, well, look, hey, tough, you know, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And mm-hmm. if, Jordan if boys are falling yeah. behind and if men are falling behind, then either they find a way on their own as individuals to figure that out, or this is, you know, this is the state of nature. Well, Deal with it. I mean, Richard, this, this is helpful of what I was struggling with before. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, um, you know, earlier you, 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 your rejoinder to Shadi was you, you'll, you'll respond in a more optimistic way. Um, how optimistic are you that, that uh, more targeted policies can um, shift these cultural things, these very complicated cultural things in a predictable way? I guess that's what I was trying to get at earlier, mm. is what's, the, what's your confidence in... Uh, these particular uh, policy proposals, which, again, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but Shadi's encouraging me not to pull my punches, um, is an attempt to feminize men a bit more, um, to redefine roles and to redefine manhood in a way that is more sociable, more socialized, uh, to befit a more modern, more peaceful post-industrial society that requires more intelligence, more emotional intelligence of people to succeed in. To what extent are you confident that that we can, by twisting these knobs, um, as you say, you know, you wrote a book uh, not wanting to be polemical, not a Josh Hawley book, 
because I agree those are not terribly useful. Um, nevertheless, uh, give me give me a little sense of of you know your your optimism, your epistemological optimism on this. I mean, you could also, uh, to be clear, you could write, you know, the polemic could come from the other side just as strongly too, which is more along the lines of like, yeah, get over yourselves, men. Mm. Um, you know, uh, yeah, maybe we don't need you. Make, prove yourself useful or, or you know, sh- you know, shape up or ship out, basically, could be the other way to think about it. So, look, I'm, I'm a Brookings Institution scholar, so obviously I believe that the right public policy can solve all of our problems <laughs> uh, as long as it's correctly evaluated. Um, so, like, I don't want to overstate the role of policy but i do i do think that the cultural task in front of us which is to say something other than just yeah well you had your turn you know shape up is actually not good enough we have a cultural responsibility to find pro-social roles for everybody including men and women and to the extent that there are differences between them say between mothers and fathers that recognizes those differences without making one better or worse than the other without making one redundant without benching one group or the other because no one really wants that and so i think like at the risk of sounding much more grandiose than the book does one of the things we have to face is this is a cultural task that has been laid before us by the success of the women's movement. And the answer is neither a kind of Hawley-esque celebration of adolescent masculinity and a, some hope that we can turn back the clock, nor is it to say, well, the future's androgyny. You know, there's no difference between men and women anyway, because I've got to tell you, having raised three boys, neither of those messages are very helpful in terms of equipping them for the world that they're going to encounter, which is one of equality, but also one where there are some differences between them. So I'll give you one example. Right now, 40% of births take place outside marriage in the US, rising, much bigger for certain groups than others, especially those with less education. In every single US state, a child born outside marriage presumed sole custody to the mum. The father has to prove paternity and go to court to get access to his kid. Now, that's just, I want to change that policy. Uh, it's not true if you're married, by the way. Marriage does a, divorce laws are pretty good. But if you're unmarried, which is this massive group and growing group now, the central message that public policy sends to fathers is, well, we don't even know if you are the dad. And by the way, we're only after you for child support. Now, will changing that policy overnight reinvent fatherhood? No, but it will be a step in the right direction. And it's a dereliction of cultural duty, I'll say it that strongly, to not be thinking about these roles and finding positive ways to have those roles and not just run silent on it. Because right now we have a whole set of structures which are going the other way. We are simply failing to update our institutions for the massive shock, positive shock, that the women's movement has presented. And most ordinary people out there raising kids in relationships, in marriages, are absolutely engaged in this cultural task. So why don't we help them? Hmm. But what about the ones who aren't married or don't? So, I mean, one of the shocking statistics that you mention is that fewer than one in five American adults think that marriage is essential to living a fulfilling life. That is that's mm-hmm. crazy to me. Eighty-two percent of women aged twenty-five to thirty-four say it is okay for an unmarried female to have and raise a child. Um, and maybe that's a little bit different because okay doesn't have a strong normative value, but it's clear that there is a rapidly declining value attached to marriage. And if a lot of your argument depends on the institution of marriage, 
then doesn't your argument run into a bit of a problem if there is this generational shift, or actually not even generational, mm-hmm. it seems to be across the entirety of American society to say nothing of God knows what, like Sweden, Denmark, or France. But mm-hmm. um, if if marriage is the glue, and and we can also dig a little bit deeper, marriage tends to be the glue in more religious societies. And we know that religious affiliation and and observance and belief is declining precipitously, even in the U.S., which used to be the one outlier among advanced Western democracies. So it's even happening here. Um, So religion, marriage, there are these deeper structural things that you need, and there's no obvious way to create a religious awakening or specifically a Christian awakening in America today, unless you have an idea. But that seems, that seems to be a major, uh, a major def- factor that is... That's definitely not in my book, uh, <laughs> for sure. That's, that could be... A, you know, maybe that'll be another book. But um, no, I, I, I think, Shadia, with respect, that you're, mis- you're mischaracterizing my position. Um, uh, and this is where a lot, a lot of, I lose a lot of the social conservatives. I'm absolutely not relying on marriage as the future. Marriage is effectively in the rearview mirror culturally speaking. Marriage was the glue, but it's no longer the glue. And marriage was the glue because you had a man who was going to be the provider. You had a woman who had to get married because she wanted to raise kids and she needed to live. And so marriage was a nitty and she raised kids. And the thing about that, that system was it was pretty stable because they're kind of glued together. It was pretty effective because very clear divisions of labor. It wasn't bad for kids because it was quite a stable family life. And everyone kind of knew their role, the social scripts. And my own parents, right, they had pretty clear scripts to follow, right? It, was, it wasn't, of course, they were very equal and so on, but it was like it, the world, it sort of worked. It worked. It was one fatal flaw, which was it was incredibly unfair to women because it put them in a position of dependency. And that was the central insight of the women's movement, And that's what they went for. And they successfully dismantled it. And there is no going back to a model of the family, which is based on marriage as a relationship of economic dependency, at least over any kind of long-term period. It's done. But I didn't say marriage as a relationship of economic dependency. I just said marriage generally. I mean, presumably there's a way to But I don't argue that. I don't argue for that. I don't, I mean, this is like the right, oh, let's have a marriage bonus in the tax system. I'm going to say, no, let's not have a marriage bonus in the tax. It was literally only Hawley's only proposal. Um, it's like, f- 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 there's so much wrong with that that I, I can't even start. But, but no, I actually think we've got to, we'd like, it's time to accept that, that that version of marriage is gone. Uh, gone. Uh, and good, because it was fatally flawed by its incredible injustice. <laughs> but... That doesn't mean fathers don't matter. So my argument is that we have to create a much stronger independent social institution of fatherhood. Fatherhood used to be bundled into marriage so that husband and father was virtually like went together, right? Now that's not true, but it doesn't mean that fatherhood doesn't matter. And so my argument is not reconstitute marriage. It is rebuild fatherhood independent so that even if you're not married, in fact, arguably, especially if you're not married, you still matter as a dad. And that from that, a lot of my policies about paid leave and stuff flow. But I'm leaning very hard into fatherhood. A lot of conservatives do not agree with me about this. They think the only way you're going to get dads to be dads is through marriage. 
And I think the only way you're going to restore marriage, if you care about that, is through fatherhood. But more importantly, I don't really care about that. What I care about is parenting, whether you're married or not. And that's the world we're in, whether you like it or not. I mostly like it. A lot of social conservatives don't. But that's the world that the women's movement brought us, which is marriage is a choice. Hmm. Uh, that's that's helpful, Richard. You know, I mean, in in some ways, it, it, it uh, assuage is one of those sort of things that I was not fully sure of uh, in the book. Um, to a large extent, because um, I think it's easy to read the book on the one hand as a, as a book of crisis, like so many other books that have come before it, and, uh, and then fall into the, temp the conservative temptation about the sort of, well, you know, without rolling back, there, there's nothing to it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to this, this idea that it's not going back. But what do you say to conservatives? And I want to just preface that I'm not a big fan of these like happiness studies and, you know, when, when measuring mm. happiness, I, I find this, this really problematic in a lot of ways. But you, you get this sort of rhetoric among social conservatives in any case, that um, they point to the fact that, that, that marriages are more stable uh, among the wealthy, that it's mm -hmm. become a luxury good, but it's still a good and it's still it's desired. They point to, there's countless articles written in The Atlantic about the misery of modern dating, uh, about how women are getting really the short end of the stick uh, in modern dating, how they are unhappy, how doing the Sheryl Sandberg lean in, uh, women chase this, they, they are following a social script. Uh, I really like that. That I think it's a really good way to think about social scripts and writing these. So a new social script has been written for women, for young women. Mm -hmm. They're following it. And then there's a sense of unhappiness. And I think a lot of social conservatives would then point to and say, well, they're missing um, that kind of, and I guess they would point to something innate in, in women and something innate in the male-female relationship, uh, that there's something ineffably manly uh, that women desire and want, and it's been taken away by a lot of these things, and that there's an emptiness there right now, that it's a broader crisis of this kind of meaning. Now, I just want to say, I'm not... I've never been convinced by this, but I want to know, I'd mm -hmm. like to hear how you react to that. I thought yeah. Demir was going to say, I've, I've never been married. I've never been but, married. It's um, true. So we should also clarify to perhaps new listeners that we are speaking of that of which we do not, of yeah. which we know not. Two bachelors be, so talking of us. to an author of uh, of a book on, 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 on men uh, who's raised children. We haven't. So, I mean, yes. I think that's a huge yes. problem for us. But in any case, yes. so. I, no, I have, you know, I have, I have some experience of these institutions. Um, but I, like, again, I think it's, it's one of these things where when you, like, if you, if you play this conversation back, like to most people, right, what they're saying, what they're saying, uh, are you saying that women who are heterosexual actually really like the idea of having a long-term companionship with a guy? The answer is yes. But I'm not sure that's a very shocking finding mm. or the other way around. I mean, like long-term companionship is hugely important for, for human well-being. If you, if you are attracted to people of the opposite sex, then probably makes sense to be with someone of the opposite sex to the extent that like actually yeah, having sex is important to you, then, you know, probably going to want to have sex with someone of the opposite sex. And so like, again, if you go out into the ordinary world and say to people, you're going to be happier if you form a good long-term relationship with someone who you're physically attracted to. They're going to be like, well, thank you. 
thank you, Doctor Hamid, uh, or, or whatever. Right? <laughs> thank you for that break for that incredibly shocking insight from Social Science Citadel, <laughs> the Brookings Institution. You know. Uh, so on the one hand, it's like blindingly obvious that's what people want, and if there are things getting in the way of that, we should try and figure out what those things are. And yes, it turns out that women who are attracted to men want to be with someone who's a man and might be a man in various obvious ways, and by the way, vice versa. And that's okay. That's not incompatible with gender inequality. But come back to this point about marriage, and I've written a piece in the Atlantic a long time ago about marriage, which is, I think, to understand what's happening to marriage in now, we have to get our heads around the fact that the most economically powerful women in the history of the world, college-educated American women, right? I'll, I'll, that's, if you accept that simplification, right? College-educated American women are arguably among the most economically powerful women. They are the most likely to get and stay married. Right. Right. What's going on there? Because that is not what anybody expected. That is not what the feminist movement of the 70s expected. As marriage became a choice with growing economic uh, independence, surely fewer women would get married. And as you go back in time, women with more education were less likely to get married. Now it's flipped the other way around. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to be married. So you've got these super educated women with fantastic careers. They're the ones who are getting married. Now, social conservatives say, you see, they want a traditional marriage. See, the, the elite, they're doing it. No, they're not. It might be marriage, but it's nothing like the marriage we had 50 years. It is based on a profoundly different set of values. One is egalitarianism between the two. And secondly, it's based on parenting. Modern marriage is much more like a joint venture for parenting and human capital formation in kids. And that's what upper middle class marriage in America is about now. And by the way, I think it's good. And marriage is a useful commitment device for that. And we've seen the rise in gray divorce, which is parents staying together till the kids have gone and then getting divorced. If you needed more evidence that, that marriage was becoming more of a joint venture for, for the development of their children's human capital, that's pretty good evidence. So we have to understand that even if it looks like marriage from traditional marriage from the outside, I trust, tell me, I, and here I do speak from experience as well as social science, it is nothing like the marriage of my parents. Hmm. That's it for part one, dear listeners. If you're not yet a paying member, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get access to the whole show. See you in the bonus.